Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we are headed together this morning. As we continue our way through various meal scenes in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, all these scenes that are set at the table throughout Luke. And as you're turning there, you know, we live in a world of, of constant interruptions, constant distraction with technology always beeping and buzzing to keep us away from our present moment. Most of the time, we would do well to live less distracted and much more present in each moment. However, there are some times that interruptions are exactly what we need to break through our assumptions and show us the way that things could be. As some of you know, yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and tomorrow is the day, the national holiday that we remember and celebrate his legacy, all the things that he did and said uh, that we now know as the Civil Rights Movement. His powerful voice and all the actions of the civil rights movement were in many ways a profound interruption to the norms of American society. Well, one of the most powerful actions and incredible interruptions that happened during this time was known as the sit-in movement. The sit-in movement, which began with a group of black students sitting to eat at a lunch counter that had been specifically designated for white people. Here's how Martin Luther King Jr. described the sit-in movement in his autobiography. He said, in 1960, an electrifying movement of students shattered the placid surface of campuses and communities across the South. The young students of the South, through sit-ins and other demonstrations, gave America a glowing example of disciplined, dignified, nonviolent action against the system of segregation. Though confronted in many places by hoodlums, police guns, tear gas, arrests, and jail sentences, the students tenaciously continued to sit down and demand equal service at variety store lunch counters. And they extended their protest from city to city, spontaneously born, but guided by the theory of nonviolent resistance, the lunch counter sit-ins accomplished integration in hundreds of communities at the swiftest rate of change in the civil rights movement up to that time. In communities like Montgomery, Alabama, the whole student body rallied behind expelled students and staged a walkout while state government intimidation was unleashed with a display of military force appropriate to a wartime invasion. Nevertheless, the spirit of self-sacrifice and commitment remained firm. And the state governments found themselves dealing with students who had lost the fear of jail and physical injury. He went on to say, one may wonder why this movement started with the lunch counters. The answer lays in the fact that it's there 
we had suffered indignities and injustices that could not be justified or explained. Almost all of us had experienced the tragic inconveniences of lunch counter segregation. We could not understand why we were welcomed with open arms at most counters in the store, but were denied service at a certain counter because it happened to be selling food and drink. In a real sense, the sit-in represented more than a demand for service. It represented a demand for respect. And this transformed society. In October of 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. joined the students at one of these sit-in demonstrations, and he, along with about 300 others, were arrested. But later on, as he reflected on this experience, he said that these sit-in movements were a turning point for him personally, as he began to see the possibilities of a new society. And no doubt, it was a turning point for our country as well. Because as we talked about last week, meals are boundary markers in any society. The people you break bread with are the people you live with. They're people who you trust. To eat together is to be in deep communion with one another and so when boundaries of food are broken, society is transformed. If we can eat together, we can live together. As he said, this movement was not merely a demand for service, but a demand for respect. And so to acknowledge a shared humanity and belonging is, is really what they were after. Those who can break bread together can build life together. So society was transformed because some students interrupted mealtime expectations. And in our passage today, we are going to encounter a mealtime expectation that was interrupted. And we will see how Jesus responds to this mealtime interruption. But Jesus, see, he breaks bread and, and builds his kingdom at the table with others. And it's never what anyone expects. So let's read together Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money 
to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. It's about 500 days' wages. And the other, 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We thank you for the constant invitation that you give us to come to the table and to join you there. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we have another story at the table where Jesus challenges assumptions and demonstrates the kingdom of God. So let's walk back through this story together and reflect on the people, what they do, and and how Jesus responds. But first, I want to focus on the setting. Right? I mean, at its most basic level, we've already said, like all the stories we're looking at throughout this series, this takes place at the table. This takes place around a meal. I might have to switch microphones again. That happened last week. We're doing okay so far. Um, this takes place at a table around a meal. But what kind of meal was this? What kind of meal was this? Now, Luke doesn't spell this out exactly, but one thing that many scholars have reflected on is this ancient context known as the symposium. The symposium. Now, today, when we think of a symposium, we think of maybe speakers presenting uh, at a conference or something, you know, speaking on different topics and things like that. That's a symposium. But really, what, what we today call a symposium is just kind of a dressed up business, more formal version of a very old custom. In ancient Greece and Rome, a symposium was actually a great banquet. 
in which scholars, teachers, philosophers, politicians, all kinds of people would gather together around a meal. And it would often last for hours as they would eat and and discuss and debate all kinds of things going on in their day. And by the first century, this Greco-Roman practice had become kind of a cultural norm for all kinds of people. People would gather together around tables and discuss what was going on and and debate and, and all these different kinds of things. So many scholars consider that possibly many of the meals that Jesus participates in, especially the ones that he has with Pharisees and teachers of the law, might have been some kind of mix of the Jewish tradition of hospitality and this Greco-Roman tradition of the symposium. Another commentary that I read described how many houses at that time, especially large ones where dinners like this would have been held, had semi-public areas. And so there would be a dining room that opened into a big courtyard that would open out onto the street. And so while this was going on, people would often be passing by. They would come and go. They'd listen in on the conversation, perhaps hope for a little bit of leftover food or something. But, you know, like, there wasn't television. There wasn't NPR. There wasn't all of these different things. This was where they would listen in and say, hey, what's going on in the world? What are the ideas that that I need to learn Right, this, this was it. So, so people would pass by, they would come and go. And so this dinner may very well be one of these symposium-style banquets hosted by a Pharisee where Jesus perhaps was invited to participate in the teaching and conversation and discussion that would have happened there. And various people might have been coming and going throughout that time. And so this is how such a great mix of people could end up at a gathering like this, even people who had not been invited. So who all is here at this meal? Well, we don't have a detailed list, but in verse 37, Luke tells us that there's a host, or perhaps it's... um. Yeah, verse 36 and 37, 36, we see that uh, Luke tells us there's the host, this Pharisee who we find out is named Simon, and he invites Jesus to a meal. And, And then, of course, so Jesus is there, the host is there, and we know that there's a number of other people there that we see them chime in with a comment in verse 49. And so then in the next verse, in verse 37, Luke introduces us to this woman who wanders into the mix. And here's how he describes her. He says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, first he does tell us that this woman is known as a sinner. But Luke does not describe what this sin is. He doesn't tell us what it is that she's done. Many have assumed that she was a prostitute, and maybe she was, but she could have also just as easily been known as the town gossip, or maybe she was a drunk, 
Or maybe she was a beggar out on the streets who would steal from people as they went by. He doesn't tell us what her sin was. He just tells us that she was known as a sinner in that city. And that's all that many people notice about her. But that is not remotely the most important thing about her. The most important thing is what comes next. See, Luke does say that she was a woman who lived a sinful life, but then he goes on to say that this woman learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Right? She hears that Jesus is going to be there. So she goes there. That's the most important thing about her. Right? This, this reemphasizes something about Jesus that we talked about last week. Jesus is the kind of person who people want to be with. Jesus is the kind of person who people want to be with. Levi, the tax collector, invited him over. Simon, the Pharisee, invited him over. This woman found out where Jesus was going to be, and so she went there. Right? Jesus is the kind of person that people want to be with. And really, followers of Jesus ought to be the same. We should be the kind of people who bring life to a party, not drain it, right? right? We should follow in Jesus' footsteps as being the kind of people who want to be with people and who people want to be with. This is who Jesus is. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how this woman knows about Jesus, but when she hears about him, she runs to him. And just like with Levi last week, I am sure that there is some kind of background story here that Luke just doesn't tell us. Because Jesus has been going around, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been interacting with all kinds of people. I mean, perhaps she had heard him teach. And so she, she knew, oh, wow, this guy, I, I need to be there with him. Or maybe she ha, had, had seen him heal people. Perhaps she had been healed from something by him. We don't know, but all that we know is that when she finds out where Jesus is going to be, she goes there. I love that. And then verse 38 tells us more. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured perfume on them. Now again, the context will help us imagine what exactly is going on in this scene. At these traditional symposium meals, people did not sit in chairs. They would recline on cushions, kind of sitting on their side with their legs out and then their you know, knees bent and feet behind them, right? And so Jesus is reclined there on a cushion next to a little table with his feet behind him. And the woman is standing behind him, right over his feet. And she begins weeping. And I wonder why she wept. Perhaps it's something that Jesus said as he engages in the discussion 
that's going on at a meal like this. Luke doesn't tell us here, but if we flipped back to chapter 6, we can see quite a few of Jesus' teachings that he's already been sharing so far in Luke's narrative. Things like, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil. I wonder if any of that caught her attention. We also see in Luke chapter 6, the chapter right before this story, Jesus teaches, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Perhaps some of that caught her attention. Maybe these are some of the things that she had heard him say before that, that brought her to come and seek him out. Or maybe these are some of the things that Jesus was saying again as he engaged in this discussion around the symposium table that causes her to begin to weep. Whether it was the words that he spoke, or maybe even just the presence of Jesus as he interacts with kindness and thoughtfulness, whatever it was, she begins to weep at his presence. She begins to weep as she stands behind him. And whether intentionally or not, her tears fall down and land on his feet. And so realizing what had happened, she stoops down and begins to dry them with the only thing that she has, her hair. And she goes on to, to kiss his feet and anoint them with the oil that she has with her, the perfume that she has with her. What an amazing thing. Standing behind him, moved by him, beginning to weep, and just responding right then and there. Now Luke doesn't tell us, at least initially, how Jesus responds to this. Instead, he tells us the Pharisees' reaction as he sees this woman who is very clearly interrupting their meal, beginning to get in the way of their stimulating conversation. And so in verse 39, this Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Simon, this Pharisee, sees this exchange going on in front of him and immediately begins to judge both the woman and Jesus, right? And then there's this assumption embedded within his judgment as well. 
Not only does he say that if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. He would know that she's a sinner. He also assumes that if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, that this woman was a sinner, he would respond to her by rejecting her. Right? He just assumes that. Well, of course, if he knew she was a sinner, he would send her away. In other words, if this man were truly from God, he would do what I do. If he were truly from God, he would be like me. How often do we do that, I wonder? How often do we assume that God's ways are our way, just like us? And so anyone different from us must be far off from the path in desperate need of correction. And you see, there's more than one way to do this. There's more than one way to sort of bring this kind of judgment. On the one hand, we can do it like the Pharisee who judges sinners who are not righteous enough, right? That's one way to bring about this kind of judgment. But on the other hand, we can also go on to the other side and judge the people who are like the Pharisee, right? Who are not gracious enough. But whatever the case, whether legalism or license, whether not being righteous enough or not being gracious enough, we often meet others with judgment because they're not like us. And certainly this story is about the importance of being gracious the importance of grace and forgiveness and all that revolves around this, this woman, who she is and, and what she's doing. But it's vital to recognize that the story began with a Pharisee inviting Jesus to dinner and Jesus saying, yes, yes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is often at odds with the Pharisees, right? I mean, we saw this just last week as they questioned him about eating with tax collectors. And we'll see this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees intensify as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. And by the end of this story, Simon the Pharisee is going to get an earful from Jesus. Jesus has plenty to say to him, but nonetheless, Jesus joins the Pharisees at the table. You see, Jesus' table is bigger than anyone could ever imagine. It's big enough for tax collectors. It's big enough for this sinful woman. And it's even big enough for a self-righteous Pharisee. So no matter who we are, Righteous Pharisee or notorious sinner, we are challenged at Jesus' table. We are challenged by Jesus. And so this man judges what's going on in front of him, both Jesus and the woman. And then I love, it says, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. And, of course, being a prophet, Jesus answers this thought that this man had to himself. 
And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. And Jesus tells a story. I love this. I mean, Jesus could have just called him out right there. Hey, you're being judgmental. You need to cut it out. You need to love this woman. But he doesn't do that. Jesus tells a story. There's something powerful and inviting about telling stories. Right? Jesus isn't just proving a point. He's not just saying this is how things ought to be. He's inviting Simon the Pharisee into an, a time of self-reflection by sharing a story. There were two men. Both owed a debt, one 500, one 50, and both were forgiven. Which one would love more? Well, obviously, the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, you're right. He's given Simon the opportunity to enter in to this experience, to move away from judgment toward reflection. Stories are things that we share so naturally when we gather around tables together. I think this is the way of sharing Jesus. Jesus doesn't mean for us to go around telling people, hey, this is what you need to believe, this is what you need to do. Rather, Jesus models for us that to spread the kingdom of God, we should sit down with people and share stories. Our stories, the stories that we know from Scripture, and we should also take plenty of time to listen to their stories. This is how the kingdom of God is built. By listening to one another and honestly sharing. That is what will move people from a place of judgment to a place of reflection. As long as we're arguing about ideas, we're just going to keep arguing. But as soon as we can share our stories, we might actually be able to see each other. That's what Jesus does here. And I love after telling this story and inviting Simon into this time of reflection, in verse 44, Jesus turns toward the woman. I love that. He, Jesus is not just trying to, to sort of use her as an object lesson. Right? Okay, here's, here's a great example. Let me, you know, use this moment to keep teaching. He turns toward her. He sees her. Jesus is not merely illustrating the kingdom of God. He is doing the kingdom of God as he turns toward her and looks her in the eyes. But then he does speak to Simon. I love this. What we see as he turns toward her and then speaks to Simon is that hospitality is mutual. Hospitality goes both ways. As Jesus turns toward this woman, he extends hospitality to her. She is welcome here. He's not sending her away. 
He's not telling her to be off because she is a sinner. He turns toward her and he extends hospitality. You are welcome here. And then he says to Simon, all of these things, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Not just what she is known for. Do you see her? I came to your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but she's been kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus not only extends hospitality to her, he receives the hospitality from her that she offers. Hospitality goes both ways. As we not only welcome others, but also enter into truly the presence of others. And I think there's something really important to, to pay attention to here. Hospitality is different from hosting. Who's the host of this dinner? Simon the Pharisee, right? He's the host. But who is the one showing hospitality at this dinner? It's this woman who didn't even belong there. Hospitality is different from hosting. Hosting has to do with what you have. Here's a place to meet. Here's food. Here's a comfortable atmosphere. So on and so forth. Hospitality, hosting has to do with what you have. But hospitality has to do with who you are and how you are with others. I, I always think about, when I think about this, I always think about this woman who Caitlin and I have come into contact with at the YMCA. Uh, she goes swimming most days of the week at the pool at the YMCA in Auburn. And she is the most friendly person on earth. Uh, she is doing her laps back and forth in the pool. And every time that we see her, she just lights up and says, oh, good to see you. Welcome. She is not an employee. She's not a lifeguard. But she is the one who extends hospitality. She is the one who says, hey, you're welcome here. You're wanted here. And she often asks us, hey, are you coming back later this week? Will I see you again next week? Right? That's hospitality. This is not her home. It's the gym. But she is making everyone around her feel welcomed and like she belongs. Hosting is different from hospitality. It doesn't have to do with what you have or don't have. You don't have to have a nice place or a lot of resources to be hospitable. You just have to love. That's what we see here. And that's the point of this parable that he has told. That's the point of everything that's going on here. The point is forgiveness and love. And, and love is a sign of forgiveness. Jesus makes it very clear that this woman is not forgiven because she has shown love. Rather, she shows love because 
she's received forgiveness. He says this in verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's past tense. As her great love has shown. Her love shows that she's already experienced the forgiveness of God. And so she pours out from the depths of her heart. Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And so here's the invitation for us. The invitation in this is to hospitably welcome the grace of God so that we might hospitably welcome others with lavish love. That we would hospitably welcome God's grace into our life so that we might lovingly, hospitably welcome others into our lives. And there are two things that get in the way of welcoming the grace of God and consequently also get in the way of welcoming others. They are pride and shame, which are often just two different sides of the same coin. Pride and shame. You see, when we do not see our sins at all, we become prideful. And we see ourselves as too good to welcome others, too good to extend hospitality to others. I have no need for God's grace, and I have no business with them. But on the other hand, when we only see our sin, we're filled with shame. And we begin to see ourselves as not good enough for anyone. I'm not worthy of God's grace, and I'm not even going to go close to anyone else. Both pride and shame build up walls to keep us from others and from God. But between pride and shame, or apart from pride and shame, there is honesty and openness. Honesty and vulnerability. Honesty about our sin. And an openness to meet Jesus at the table. That is where we are met by grace. The table is where we hear the words, you are forgiven. And so my prayer for us is that we would continue to recognize our sins and receive his grace so that we might be a people who live lives of great love for the one who is forgiven much loves much. As we close, I want to read another poem to you guys. I read from this book last week. It's a book by a guy named Drew Jackson uh, called God Speaks Through Wombs. And in it, he's taken the first several chapters of the Gospel of Luke and just responded to each story with a poem. So this is a poem that he's written for the story we've just read. It's written from the woman's perspective, and it's called Alabaster. 
word got around that the one who does wonders is under their roof. I wonder what he'll do for me. Will he reject me, as do the ones he eats with? Subject me to false perceptions? Accept me? I guess acceptance is worth the risk. When you are constantly dismissed by men who claim to be agents of God. But despite what they say, I know God. And I have learned to discern the difference between Pharisaical leaven and bread from heaven. My tears can't help but roll when I taste sweet mercy, when I am shown worth instead of hurried out of his presence. I break open the alabaster jar of my one precious life to pour out on the beautiful feet of this one who brings good news. Amen.